Well, welcome to the Black Flag Podcast, Adam. Um, Adam Fitzgerald. Uh, I was just gonna. We we thought about uploading this to uh, YouTube, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that'll get banned. So we're just gonna record that and then put it on all the podcatchers and stuff like that. So, uh, what? Where were you on 9/11? I guess is a good first question. Well, I was at work, and I was working in um, the police athletic league where they had a uh, uh, an office in uh, Glendale, Queens, and uh, I was actually in the warehouse uh, getting ready for the day. And then I heard on the radio it was 1010 winds that they uh, a small plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. And um, they didn't know it was a commercial plane. They just got reports there was a plane. I said, wow, really, man? Because Tuesday yeah. was actually a very beautiful day, actually. I remember it was very fair. It was about 75 degrees, something like that. But it was clear day. And I was like, man, they must have made a terrible mistake. And that's, you know, Bush actually says, oh, wow, that's a terrible pilot. It wasn't until the reports of the second plane came. And, you know, everybody by then, you know, we didn't know much about terrorism or nothing like that. But um, we were like, wow, this this something is going on here. Something nefarious. Uh, our work told us go home. So when we left, I didn't I didn't live too far from from where I work. So we went up in, in New York. They have Brook, three, four story tenements, Brooklyn, Queens. And you can actually see lower Manhattan from your rooftop. And we all went up there and there's thousands of people across the rooftop. And you could see the gaping hole, and you know it wasn't a small plane. And then what happened was, um, I'm sorry, no, the second plane I was there for, actually. Um, I have to go, I have to correct myself. So after the first plane, we, the job shut down. We went up on the on the roof, and um, we saw, I, I didn't see the plane crash because it came in from Jersey side, and we we're on the other side of the World Trade Center in um, Brooklyn, Queens. And um, we saw the, the fireball. And um, that's when we knew that, you know, something was, was happening. And then we stood on the roof and we saw the smoke and everything. And we saw the first tower collapse, North Tower. That's the mm -hmm. second plane at, at the tower. And uh, there was silence. You didn't hear it screaming. It was just stunned silence. The second tower fell. And, you know, then we started hearing the faint whispers of people, you know, crying and whatnot. Stunning as it was, we went downstairs and went back to our apartments and stuff. And then um, the days afterwards, it was almost like shock for days with the people in the community. And all of a sudden there was anger and ignorant anger at that. Because I remember reports in Brooklyn that there was a guy, a Sikh, who was at these gas stations. Because we have a lot of Sikhs in Brooklyn, Queens that run gas stations. And what they had to do was basically wear American hats and flags because there was reports of them being attacked mm -hmm. by people because they wanted revenge. And one guy actually uh, burned alive a Sikh in a gas station in Brooklyn, and he got life in prison. He burned him alive. And, you know, this is the ignorance of, of you know, what was going to happen. And I, I didn't know anything about politics. I was so ignorant back then. You know, I didn't know anything. It wasn't until later that, you know, the public at large, basically, where they could have basically, if the American government said, we're going to attack Easter Island, for example, they would have approved right off there because we wanted revenge and bloodlust and all that. Fast forward years later, I moved to Vegas in 2003. And about 2006, um, after studying religion that we talked about and stuff, you know, I, I don't know what made me, but I think I came across an article by Justin, the late Justin Raimondo on antiwar.com about the dancing Israelis being, and I didn't know anything about it. I said, wow, you know, is this some crackpot nuttery? And I read the article and I said, well, all right, let me look into that. Now I'm always interested in the who, what, when, and why. I've always loved about psychology of geopolitics and, and criminal underworld. I studied forensic psychology at the City College of New York in, in early 90s and stuff. So I, I, I said, I want to know why these people did what they did. You know, yeah. I didn't know anything about physics. I, I didn't, you know, when the World Trade Centers fell, World 1, 2, and 7, you know, there were a lot of people online back in 2006 talking about this. And I was like, wow, you know, it's like reading Sanskrit. So I'm like, I, I'm not going to do well there. I said, well, you know, let me see who these people were. And if you told me that 17 years later, and I'd still be more involved then, now than I did then about 9-11, I would have told you you were nuts. 
But, um, you know, those years I went from studying about who these people were that led me to the intelligence community that were following these people that led me to form policy that were to, you know, that are being fed the intelligence about these intelligence agencies born in Damascus, which led me to believe and led me to study Wahhabism and Middle East culture and Islam and the Quran and, you know, why, uh, why there was intelligence communities involved with Israel and Saudi Arabia and, you know, the history there, it was a lot to, you know, it was a lot to study. And for years, I didn't have viral media for years. I said, you know, no one's going to listen to me. And, you know, I had this New York accent, you know, no one cares and stuff like that. So I said, there's qualified people talking about this stuff anyway. But what I found to be shocking still to this day is that we, we had an enormous amount of people spreading just absolutely ridiculous theories. And it wasn't until about 2000 and I want to say 17, 18, that I started doing viral media because I said, you know what, you know, I think these people are doing themselves a disservice. And yeah, you know, I always said there was a war on two fronts here. One's mm-hmm. a war for information by the federal government, which is a good war. And then there's a war of disinformation from either the, you know, the viral media or, or these, you know, conspiracy theorists involved in 9-11 truth movement. And I thought that by doing my own, my own stuff that I would just, give the public primary source material in hopes of educating uh, the audience about 9-11 itself. Okay, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you so you said where the federal government is the information campaign. Is that, are you saying that everything from the federal government as the official story is the actual story? And no, but no the, I wouldn't say that at all. No. Okay, all right. I think, but it's not all false. Like, the, in order, I'll give you an example. Okay. The 9-11 truth movement basically says that the federal government narrative, whatever this is, they, they, they never explain what the narrative is. But the narrative is basically simple for them. But the narrative is all false. So if you I've read the report. In fact, I'm doing a chapter reading currently on the report. But on the, not on, the, on, the on the 9-11 commission report. Right. Yep. Yeah. OK. Not everything in it is false. It's incomplete. So it's not okay. false. So in other words. There, the 9-11 Commission report is saying that there was 19 fundamentalists that basically hate our freedoms and they hijacked four planes. There was more than 19. It was more than four planes. And the intelligence services were involved with these people going back to the mid-90s. That's what the 9-11 Commission is missing because they right. didn't cover this. So right. in other words, I've interviewed people like Anthony Schaefer from Evil Danger. Mark Rossini, who worked at Alex Station, and I'm the only person to ever interview the CIA chief of station at Alex Station, uh, Michael Schroyer, regarding 9-11. And basically, it's not that I'm special or nothing. I'm just reaching out to these people because they want to talk. Sure. It's 22 yeah. years but then, But they're not telling the truth. Like, like their stories aren't being heard because they weren't reported by the 9-11 Commission. Oh. And so they ignored them because there was a cover-up involving the intelligence services, foreign and domestic, involving these hijackers. And we want to know why. Okay. Did they did they I'm cover the 93 attack? Was is that the right year? Yeah. Yeah, no, 90, no, 93, 93 was the right year. But uh 93 the, was much like 9-11. It was like not properly investigated. Okay. So there was a previous report on that, but the, the latest report probably doesn't have anything in it pertaining to that. Right. That, okay, yeah, because I don't think that they tied the two instances no, together. Right, right. Yeah, and they should, because there is yeah, a connection. There is a connection for sure. Yeah, there is yeah. a connection. Right. So, and you'll you'll notice in both instances that you have foreign intelligence, Israel, that was involved in the monitoring of one of the ninety three hijack uh, ninety three bombers, Mohammed Salome. Actually, his landlord was a Israeli operative, Josie Adams. <laughs> Nobody talks about this because it's you know ninety three. It happened so long ago. And, uh, you know, I get people that tell me, you know, why do you still do 9-11? In fact, a good friend of mine, I had an argument with him today and basically said, you know, nobody cares about 9-11. And I said, well, maybe, you know, I was going to do a video in response to that and say, you know, tell that to the Guantanamo detainees. I interviewed two of them that, you know what, you should forget about what happened to you. You know, what about yeah. the families? Maybe we should forget about, you know, what happened and just say, you know, let George Tennant, you know, let uh you know, uh, Tom Wilshire and, you know, Michael Scheuer and let them all get away with, you know, not telling the FBI there was two hijackers in the country. Let's just forget about it. Imagine saying that. I mean, it's one of the most major events that ever happened in modern history in a lot of ways. You know, 
I don't know if you feel like this way, but a lot of people, I'm younger, but a lot of people feel like there's pre and post 9-11 and how everything changed after that. Certainly with the wars, uh, the escalation and, you know, the war and terror and everything. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think it's a ripple effect of 9-11. Yeah. So yeah. I was, uh, I was 18 when 9-11 happened hmm. and, um. It, 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 I mean, so I remember the, top, the 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 way it was before, you know, the way America was and the way the world was before 9-11, because I was, you know, an adult, but um, it was a drastic change, drastic change. Everything kind so what, of amp, everything amped up, it seemed like. Everything got, like, bigger. Sure, I, I understand uh, your concern, because, look, New, I, New York changed. New York used to be such a... Like a lot of people get New York, you know, the attitude of New York wrong. Like we're arrogant, stuff like that. Some people are like that. But they're, they're very proud and, and very bold people because the Twin Towers basically represent power. And the 9-11 deal, the hijackers, they talked about the World Trade Center for years, even before 9-11, to talk about the attack of the World Trade Center because there was such a there was such a a a huge there were two huge buildings. They represented power and economy in the United States. And basically if you destroyed the Twin Towers, this is where I think you know there there could have been some type of incendiary device to make sure they, they crumpled. Because I always use the example that let's just say the World Trade Center survived the plane impacts. What would that mean subliminally to the American people? Hey we took your best shot now it's our turn. But if the Twin right. Towers fell you, basically, you know what that means? It basically says to the American people, hey, we got to your biggest towers in the world. We can get to you anywhere. I, so I got it's a damaging effect to the psyche, which is the reason why I'm not I'm not against the whole idea of like uh, improvised devices or explosives or thermite, whatever. I just I'm not the authority to talk about. It. That's why I never talk about it, because right. personally, my opinion means nothing. I, I this is one area I don't study. Like I'm, not, I wish I did. Now I look back on it because it's part of 9/11. But I, I'm more interested in geopolitics. So I let other people, like David Chandler, Wayne Cotton, let them, you know, because they, they, they're the experts. Interesting. Okay. So what do you think the motive of uh, putting, you know, those bombs in the the towers and also having a plane? Wouldn't you just pick one or the other? Or like if you put the bombs, you already put the bombs in there. What's the point of the plane? I guess. Well, the, the plane has to be that, uh, well, th think of it like this. The operation was known to the intelligence service before it even happened. So this is my argument, is that the NSA and the CIA were listening to the phone calls of these. And this is not speculation. We, we know this because yeah. it's factual history. So they were listening to the phone calls of Al-Qaeda and bin Laden all the way back. And when I interviewed Shoya, this is why it was a huge interview, is that he he actually says back in when bin laden was in living in the sudan in 92 see i knew about him then and that was only rumor that they knew but he solidified it that they knew about him even in 92 and i'm willing to say they knew about him before that but anyway well but certainly they did because the cia that? was the cia was supporting him in the mujahideen against the russians in the 80s well it's not verified fact that they they supported him directly i think he got an indirect support but according to dr arman al-zwahiri he wrote a book called uh the prophets under the knight's banner and it's in arabic but it basically says that the west made up that that idea that bin laden received direct funding now what the cia did was they went through the isi and basically funded operation cyclone but the, the, the arabs were very wary of ngos back then and they didn't want direct funding from the cia so in other words say i knew this so they went to directly to the cia and they gave funding and weapons to them and then it went to the mujahideen and there's two yeah. factions the mujahideen don't get them mixed up you have the arabs and the afghans and 90 percent of the fighting force was the afghans and they didn't want the arabs there because the arabs mm -hmm. are not very good fighters the afghans are but the one thing the afghans have is they have this um uh uh saying about the arabs well they're good to die for because they believe in, in martyrdom and they're willing to die, you know, right off the bat for a good cause for the uh, Islamic Ummah, which is the worldwide caliphate of, of Islam. Mm -hmm. So they that's where they got their direct funding from. Bin Laden had his own money back then. I mean, he was using his father's construction company. So it's like he didn't need CIA money. But he he says, and Abdullah Zam, who's a Palestinian imam, basically says, too, we'll take the Americans' money, but we'll not support America. Right. So they, they took their money. Now, you could say that. 
it was a trickle effect through the Maktab al-Kidamat, which is the Afghan Services Bureau. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that's true, that the CIA basically funded, uh, you know, these radical fundamentalists through there. And I don't think it was a, they didn't directly pay bin Laden. You know, there's this conspiracy that bin Laden's a CIA asset named Tim Osman. And that's ridiculous. So, no, you know, even Al-Qaeda basically says that the West made up this to discredit bin Laden and to discredit the um, the works of bin Laden on his own. But here's the real conspiracy. They knew who bin Laden was. Yeah. They knew what they were doing by funding these people. And what happens was they were creating a Frankenstein monster in replacement of the Cold War because the Cold War is about to end. And Absolutely. it did end. It did end, but they need a new enemy. This is the new enemy. The new enemy is who they were funding at the time. Just like I believe that, you know, who, who we're funding in Ukraine will be the enemy in just about two or three years. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. yep. Sure. <clears throat> so, so that's what I, you know, when it comes to uh, go back to your question about planes, um, they heard about the, uh, and this is speculation. I think they heard about the operation and manipulate the operation. In other words, if they knew that we were going to hijack planes and this was no, uh, this is no, like, um, this is not a hidden secret. They knew about mm -hmm. these. They were going to hijack planes even back in 96. Yeah, so when they were going to hijack planes, what, if they knew about the operation beforehand, well, you can have manipulate the operation before it even happens by wiring the, the building to make sure it comes down by when the planes smash into the World Trade Center. That's what, that's what I believe. But I don't know. <coughs> okay. Um, so they could trace it back to basically the terrorists instead of whoever planted the bombs. I, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you who did that because that yeah. would be speculation. I think that's irrational. And, you know, I don't want to. There's enough. Know, we know we don't probably have to speculate too much. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a rat. Like there's rational speculation and irrational speculation. I right. wouldn't say it's rational, but I, you know, like who would put the bombs in the buildings? Well, I would submit to you either. If it's, if it's a lot of people, it's people outside the United States. If it's some people, it could be a mixture of, like, say, special ops or Arabs or Israelis, you know, intelligence. I, I couldn't tell you. You know, people that are specifics, people that know specifics are not in the United States or are dead. Yeah. And that's what I make the argument for. Like JFK, the guy who shot JFK, he's either outside the United States or he's dead just to make sure that this guy doesn't talk. Like, for example... The, the Israeli intelligence services that were inside the United States in 2000, 2001, that were living next door to these people that were hijacking the planes, they're all gone. You think they're coming back to the United States to talk about what they collected? No. Same thing for the Saudis, who were monitoring Khalid al-Madar and Awapa Hazmi in California, giving them money and stuff. They're all gone. They were deported immediately in 2001 by the federal government and the FBI. Why? Because they knew that because we're allied with Israel and Saudi Arabia, that they didn't want an investigation to happen because they were afraid of what they were going to uncover. <clears throat> and so they used that because it benefits who? Israel, Saudi Arabia, United States. Convenient. And now we went to war with who? Afghanistan, Iraq. Yeah. Neither country really. Had, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Afghanistan, all right, the training camps are there. whoop you do It wasn't a big secret in the 90s. They knew about it. So how much do we know like that uh how much do we know about, like uh Israel and Saudi Arabia their the extent of their involvement with the 911 pre 911 i would say uh you know in terms of like pre intelligence and there's a, you know with Saudi Arabia there's a, there's a there's a lot Israel it's very little and it's a very taboo subject Israel and you guys should yeah. know that yeah right? that's, that's you know actually gets you in trouble that's yeah, it's not on YouTube. You know, you're you're on your way out the this, door. That's definitely the third rail of American politics. It sure is. And you know, the reason why Israel is like that is like Scientology. They go on the attack, they don't play defense. They yeah. go on the attack. Oh, you're an anti-Semite immediately. Now yeah. it's starting to lose its luster because it's so overused. But Israel had a large intelligence, it was the it's the foreign largest intelligence operation ever conducted that's known to the United States. And it was approximately over 200, 225 people involved. Uh, that was, uh, and that's not speculation. It's, it's through the public record. And one document in particular, it's, I'm surprised it's not talked about by much. It's called the Gerald Shea Memo. I'm currently doing a chapter reading of the memo just to bring it to its respectful attention. And this guy, Gerald Shea, who's a retired uh, corporate lawyer out of San Obispo, California, basically went on his own dime and basically got all the arrest reports out of these states 
And in the year 1999, 2000, 2001, what they uncovered was, was that there was a bunch of Israelis that were selling cheap art that they didn't even do themselves. They just bought it some like store like Walmart or something and tried to sell it at these government institutions like the DA, the FBI, and even went to the homes of these people. You have to wonder, well, how the hell did they know where these people lived? Anyway, they went to they went and sold art to these people. Now, what does that even mean? So well, I speculate this is that either they want to survey the government layouts of these institutions or they had listening devices in the yard to listen to the people of the FBI, the DEA. Now, why the DEA? There's a big report. The DEA report is based upon. And this was compiled in, I think, 2000 and like one or something like that. And the Sal Salon wrote a great article on this in 2005 or four. And it basically showed that the DEA was, was investigating a large drug operation in New York. And it was run by an Israeli named Cookie Orgrad, Jacob Cookie Orgrad, who basically is affiliated with a very uh, popular mistress at the time, Heidi Fleiss, if you remember that name. I know That's the name. A couple of years. And he basically owned a cell phone store in California. And, but he was running this big a drug operation. Now, what, is, what does that even mean? Well, if you're running an illegal operation inside the United States, you can't go to the, the Knesset. That's the government, like Congress, the U.S. House of Representatives, and go and say, you know, we need uh, $20 million because we're running a black operation in the United States because it will be rejected right away. So where does operation? Well, it comes from drug money, just like with CI operations, heroin industry is drug money, black operations. Mm -hmm. So I speculate this is that. To fund the Israeli art student ring and as well as the moving front companies that were following the 9-11 hijackers in the United States and as well as monitoring the FBI, the DEA and other government institutions. And this was happening in California, Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, New York, New Jersey, Detroit um, and uh, Virginia. And it was a big opera. It was huge. I mean, I'm covering state by state in these chapter readings. It was tremendous. New Mexico, it was tremendous. And basically what they were doing was they were like, there was like four or five people in each of these cells. And I submit that they were, they were compartmentalized. Like, in other words, they didn't know that there was another Israeli cell in another state. In other words, if they got arrested, they couldn't say that there was another cell in another state because they would blow the whole operation. So what happens was you had a bunch of these Israelis working in different states, all working in tandem without knowing one another. And basically, they were collecting information on who? The DA, the FBI, and 9-11 hijackers. Because in August of 2001, Israel basically gave a list of the 19 hijackers in August of 2001. How the hell did they know that? Well, where that information came from? Well, it came from the art student ring. And it came from the moving front companies like Urban Moving Systems. White Club Movers, Classic International Movers. And they were all working in tandem because when they arrested the five Israelis on the uh, New Jersey Turnpike, they found a notebook of all the phone phone uh, numbers of all the moving companies. And it just so happens that one of the movers of Urban Movers System lived in Hollywood, Florida, who was about, uh, I think it was like 10 or 15 miles away from right next door to Mohammed Atta and Ashay, the hijackers of the planes. You know, I kind of remember that, actually. That like sparks a memory of mine. Re remember hearing about these Israelis that got arrested, but mm. like you never heard what happened to them, you know, or what the real story was. Well, it was covered. I mean, it was covered. I mean, Israel is basically sh really shielded because the United yeah. States shares a lot in common with Israel when it comes to politics and religion. And basically, they're both even the biggest Zionists in the world aren't in Israel. They're in the United States. They're For called sure. evangelical Christians. Yeah, for sure. So they, they're the biggest voting bloc in the, in the United States, too. Not only that, we have nothing in common with Saudi Arabia. The only thing is that we, you know, we basically buy large amounts of oil from them. And also no country on the face of the earth buys more weapons from the United States than Saudi Arabia. They're the biggest weapons dealers on the face of the earth, the United true. States. And Saudi Arabia buys all there. And plus, also, we train at, you know, their military bases. So we we act. That's a great uh, platform to use because we go to war with these countries and basically use Saudi Arabia as a as a launching point. So with Israel, though, you know, we basically, you know, they, they're a poor country. A lot of people don't realize this. They're poor, but they don't, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia, they spend millions on the United States in terms of persuading Congress. Israel doesn't have to do that because they're in Congress and they're called yeah. the neocons and they don't need to spend money. 
you know, they're, they're, they've been situated in, you know, the early 1900s. And that's the, that's the reason why they created their own conference called the, the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, APAC. And they're the only country on the face of the earth that has their own conference that talks about not American politics, but Israeli politics and how they could persuade American politics. And what do they do? Well, they, they use blackmail, spying operations. They're the best in the world. Saudi Arabia is not. They have nothing in common with the United States. Religious, culture, nothing. They're led by a monarchy. It's Wahhabism. You know, we're a Christian nation, supposedly, right? But we have nothing in common with them, but we'll take their money. But when it comes to throwing people under the bus, we'll do it to them because there's more information about Saudi Arabia with 9-11 than there is with Israel. Israel is more maligned. But that's why I'm very careful in when it comes to Israel. Like, I don't speculate wildly about Israel. I got to be really careful or else I'm gone from YouTube. I'm on there because I'm very careful. And yeah, I only right. I only talk about primary source material. I leave speculation behind. That's why, you know, I'm still existing. What so, are your thoughts on the, the dancing Israelis? Is it just... I think it's over... I You know, in other words, it's it's, it's huge, but it's overblown. Mm. And when I, what I mean by that is that yeah, it's it's important they got caught because basically we would have never known whether Israel was involved because it took one woman who basically went outside her her apartment in in Doric Towers in Jersey City, New Jersey, and she basically used her, her binoculars to see Lower Manhattan, and all she heard was a noise, and she looked down and saw them celebrate. And because wow. of this, thank goodness she did this because she took down the license plate of these people, and she waited for her husband to come back from jury duty. And says, should I report this? They were celebrating. You know, who does that? And he says, yeah, they could be involved. So when she did that, there was a bolo that went out. And the, I think the first reports were coming out of Boston. And basically they said, be on the lookout for a New Jersey license plate, blah, 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 urban moving systems on the van. And basically there was a van in, in, in Boston at the time. There was also another van in Gramercy Park, uh, Liberty Park. There was also another van going towards New Jersey after the, all the attacks were done, trying to leave. And it took one, Scott DeCarlo, that was his name. And he had a partner, Dennis Ravelli. And they saw this truck. He remembered the license plate and it was off by one number. And he saw the number. He says, you know, that's close to the number on the bolo. I'm going to stop them. He pulled them over. And he says, hey, Liz, you know, he called back to headquarters. He said, I, we're off one number. Is this blah, blah, blah? And he got the light, right license plate. So I, these are them. Hmm. And he told them to come out, you know, get out. They didn't get out. They have no English, you know, these guys. And he says, get out again. Now he's worried. Like his partner now goes on the passenger side. He just took out, he takes out his gun. Oh, yeah. He drags them out because they didn't want to come out. Strange. So they're all on the sidewalk. Now all the people that are trying to leave New Jersey, they couldn't leave because the city's on lockdown. They see this and they start throwing garbage at them, spitting at them. So they put them in the, the cop car and they, they leave. And when as they're leaving, Savon Kurzberg, who's the driver of the truck, he's in the back of Takala's truck, uh, car. And he basically says this, which has no relevance to anything. He says, we're not your problem. The Palestinians are your problem. The, your problems are our problems, which has nothing to do with anything. It's, Why would you say that? It's such an Israeli Unless answer. You know so, hey, listen, the jig is up. They got us, right? So that's what I'm thinking. We don't know that for sure, but that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, why would you say that? So they, all right, they're detained for 71 days. The FBI gives them lie detectors. They failed all of them. So now, the, now all of a sudden the word's out. Hey, wait a minute. But what people don't realize is that they weren't the only ones arrested. And nobody talks about it. I mean, Ryan Dawson does. D.J. Thurman Detonator does. But hardly anyone knows about the next two guys who are much more important. Could lead to a bigger conspiracy. And they're mm -hmm. also urban movie system employees. And they're also Israeli. And their name was Roy Barak and Modi Bupo. And they were actually in New York at the time when they were driving to a, a customer, they say, in I think in Ohio on September 11th. And the truck is pulled over before the bolo goes out. And they're actually pulled over by the Pennsylvania State Police on some highway. I forgot the name of the highway. So they, they're on this highway and they, you know, they say, well, we're going to move a, a, a client. September 12th, they come back. And now it's all, you know, the bolo's out and all this stuff. And they're passing by um, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You know what happened there. So they drive by the, 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 the same freeway and they're pulled over by the Pennsylvania State Police, different cops. 
they get him out there, you know, they say, hey, listen, we're going to call your manager, you know, the truck. So Dominic Sudo is the manager of Movement Systems. They, they, they called manager and say, hey, listen, do you have a employees, Roy Barak, Modi Bupal? And he says, yes. Do they, you know, they, they were moving a client. And Dominic Sudo says this. That's strange because due to the day's events, we didn't have a client outside New Jersey. So they go back and they tell them, you know, your truck is empty. You don't have any moving materials in the truck. You know, if you were moving a client, where's everything? And no answer. So they're detained. And when they go back, they find something very interesting. Is that both of the men, unlike the dancing Israelis, who, by the way, it's not suspicious that they were serving in the military because all males and females in the in Israel at ages uh, 18 to, I think, 22 or something like that, could be wrong about the age, or they have to serve mandatory in the military. Yep. Four these years. two guys, these two guys were in signals intelligence, which makes it really interesting. Now, why is that interesting? Because I speculate this. This is a theory I'm working on currently, is that they were driving by Shanksville. So there's a freeway that leads into where they were pulled over. And just off the freeway is another roadway that links into Shanksville. Well, why am, I, why am I theorizing about this? Because my theory is that the, Israel had a mole inside the plane's operators. The CIA for years have been trying to get a mole inside Al-Qaeda, and they were unsuccessful. They don't have Arab linguists. Hmm. Israel basically, I think, had, had a mole inside the whole operation, and his name was Ziad Jar who's the alleged pilot of Flight 93. And why do I say this? Is because if you look at his family background, for one, his background, he was born in Lebanon, non-religious, friends with Jews and Muslims and Christians. He's a partier. He's a womanizer, stuff like this. And he got along with everybody. He moves to Germany in 1990, uh, 1999 with his uh, cousin and basically goes to university and basically... Learn, you know, and one of his uh, studies was flight engineering, of all things. And what does he do? He goes to the most radical mosque in all of Germany, Al-Quds Mosque in Hamburg, Germany, and becomes a radical fundamentalist. If this doesn't jump out to you as suspicious, I don't know what to tell you. But what's really suspicious, what I'm about to tell you next. After 9-11, in 2011, there was an arrest made in Lebanon. And this guy, Ali Al-Jara, who's a school teacher, was arrested by Hezbollah and Lebanon's police. What they found was he was an actual mole inside Hezbollah and was working with Israeli intelligence for 25 years. He had a brother named Joseph Al-Jara helping him for the last 10 years. I'm not done. There's an uncle of Ziad Jara. His name is Asim Al-Jara, who is an actual mole inside the Abu Nadal organization of older uh, fundamentalist organization that predates Al-Qaeda, working for Libyan and Israeli intelligence. So mm. his whole family is filled with intelligence operatives. So what I'm trying to speculate is this. I think Ziad Jar was an Israeli mole. Because if you look at, if you hear the phone calls on Flight 93, well, the government said, and the FBI states this, four hijackers, Ahmed al-Nami, Saeed al-Ghamdi, and uh, Mustafa al-Haznawi, the muscle hijackers, and Ziad Jar is the, the pilot hijacker. Well, the phone calls say, then there's six phone calls that say this. Hey, we see three hijackers. Two flight attendants, four passengers. And you could fit two people in the cockpit. There was one guy outside the door and he has a makeshift bomb. On the transit, flight 93 is the only flight that where the cockpit voice recorder survives. And we have the transcript. We don't have the audio. The families heard the audio in the uh, the trial for Zacharias Masawa, the alleged 20 hijack. But the transcripts are available. And if you look at the end of the transcript, it basically, there's a guy sitting next to the pilot. He says, Saeed, up, down, up, down, in Arabic. And in, in the English, it's Saeed, up, down. Saeed al-Ghamdi is a muscle hijacker. What's he doing in the cockpit? Flying the plane. Nobody talks about this. So um, what I'm trying to say is this. I think Ziad Jaro got went, went to Newark Airport on the day, got on the plane, got off the plane. And I always wondered, how the hell could he get off the plane? I, this is why the theory, you know, I, I don't dismiss he was on the plane. Because 
he actually talks on the plane. They hear him in the cockpit saying, please sit down. We took over the plane. That's his voice. But is it a recording playing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. But what I do know is this. You can get off the plane before it got off because TMZ did a great film series called The Fifth Plane. And it was about the fifth hijacked plane that nobody talks about, Flight 923. And I talked about this for years. It was a podcast episode I did two years prior to TMZ's article. And anyway, they show you how you can get off the plane. There's a, there's a hatch that leads into the electrical compartment of a plane. And even there's a hatch in, into that that leads into uh, you can get off. Hmm. Who's to say that JRJR got on this plane, got off, got into the cockpit, you know, the, the, the compartment after the plane is hijacked? He goes in the compartment, he gets, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, before the plane is hijacked, goes in his compartment and leaves and just gets off. And meanwhile, they're taken off. And then, you know, the you know, hijack is like, well, you know, we might as well just go on. Okay, so and, I'm confused on the timeline for a second, though. So sure. was Flight 93, it was hijacked while it was still on the ground? I don't remember that. I, I don't, no, no, no. It wasn't hijacked when it was on the ground. I think that he got off on the ground. Okay. That's one way to get off. He could, so, you, you can also, you can also exit. If you're taking a plane, you can get off where the, um, it's got the, it's a, it's a connection to the, the plane itself where the baggage, if there's a late baggage, they go up through this, uh, stairway that leads into the, the hallway before you get into the plane. Yep. You know what I'm yep. talking about? I do. There's a hatch there. Yeah. There's a hatch there. So that connects to the baggage compartment. The, the, by the way, it's all theory it's speculation. So that's what I'm saying. But I, he could have got off that way. I don't know how he got off, but, I don't dismiss the fact that he got off the plane because, like I said, he made two announcements on the plane, but I don't know if it's recording or not. Uh, yeah, know. because because if he was a if he was an Israeli mole, you would think that he wouldn't go down with the plane. Right, right. Unless unless the airplane didn't make it to its destination and it was going to get landed someplace was possibly the plan. Was he recorded later in the flight? Yes. Okay. Because yeah. he actually announces while the plane is hijacked that uh, we have a bomb on board. Uh, please sit down. And he says he says it twice. And mm -hmm. people that trained with him in Florida says, yeah, that's his voice. But later on, thankfully to DJ Thelma Detonator, he gave me information about, God, two or three years ago. My mind is shot. But there was some radical, there was some Arabs in New Jersey that bought equipment and I forgot the name of the equipment. It was radio equipment where you can contact the plane in the air from the ground. And they went to this store that basically, I think it was in the summer of 2001, that they tried to buy this equipment, but basically they couldn't or something like that. And they, it was equipment that could that could talk from the ground to the to the to the uh, cockpit. And I said, I wonder, you know, I damn, I wish. I wish I can um, contact that store, and uh, but it's not in existence anymore. And um, basically talk about, wow, who the who the hell were those people? And it just so happens those people were affiliated with ZRJR. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm going to talk to DJ Thurman again to remind me because I'm you know, like I have short term memory loss, so I always forget because I'm overloaded with like information and stuff like that. So that's a very interesting aspect of it. But um, yeah, I don't know. But that's a theory of mine, is that Ziyadro was an Israeli. Well, now also, too, if you want to ensure that he's, you know, that, hey, we don't want him talking, well, he's dead. Flight 19 sure. from Shanksville. And he could never sure. talk. Right. But yeah. it so happens in the debris field of Flight 93 uh, is the passport of Ziyadro. And I speculate that the two guys, Morty Barak, Morty Bupal, they threw his passport in the debris because it was such a large field. Mm -hmm. And they just, you know, that's the reason why they drove nearby it. I'm just a theory of mine. But anyway, there was yeah. another, there was a business card. And on the business card was Asim Al Jara. And on the back of that business card was a number of one of the major uh, planners of 9 11, Ramzi bin Al Sheib, Mamran Straub, Germany, in the house where Muhammad Atta Mohan Al Shehi lived. Now, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> but nobody talks about this stuff. So. Like it's, it's amazing because it shows a deeper connection. Hey, you want Israel involved? You want to see a bigger like conspiracy role? Well, here, here, hell, here is this. Stop blaming Israel for everything. You know they're not the only country that had hand. You know in, in pre-intelligence, 
Saudi Arabia yeah. was involved, the United States, CIA, NSA. But no, people would rather keep it simple. You know, I always say with the fringe conspiracy theorists that I, I sometimes, I often wish that 9 was as simple as they made it out to be because I wouldn't have pulled out every strand of my hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I wish it was simpler too because, yeah, it's hard to keep up. I mean, you've been doing this how many, 17 years, 16 years? Yeah, 17. Yeah. I mean, and the amount of information you got to just consume and the story keeps unraveling, I suppose. Well, and... yeah, and then like sorting out all the bad the bad takes too, you know, I mean, there's probably, I guarantee you there's some things that I've heard about nine 11 that makes sense to me in my little brain that are probably not true. You know, sure. like this, like the whole nine 11 truther movement or whatever. I, I mean, I kind of know that that's not the story, but mm -hmm. I'm sure that there's elements of their story that have infiltrated into the, what I believe is to be true, you know, even though I know everything, a lot of the stuff they say isn't true, but. Do you think they had, uh, they, you know, like a lot of people knew it was coming, I suppose, in the intelligence and whatnot. Do you think anyone in the buildings knew? Because I think, uh, Brett, what's the guy, um, Richard Grove? Oh, yeah. He, he kind of talked about that's what uh, kicked him off is that he knew people that knew it was, seemed to know it was going to happen. They told him to stay home from work or whatnot or he had people stay home from work that day that he's kind of surprised about. It's a bold claim. I, yeah. I, I, I would say this. People in the buildings that knew the attacks were coming would spread like wildfire in the World Trade Center. And there's a big conspiracy that 3,000 Jews didn't show up. And that was created by uh, Saudi Arabia media. And who spoke oh. about that? Okay. The murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Actually, it came out in 2003 through Memory TV and addressed this issue because somebody said 3,000 Jews didn't show up. He goes, that's not true. He goes, um, that was actually made by Saudi Arabia to throw okay. up the fact that Israel is involved with 9-11 so that Saudi Arabia doesn't become investigated. So uh, that's a, I, I thought that was interesting because Jamal Khashoggi's murdered, right? He's actually murdered in the Turkish embassy. Um, but nevertheless... Do I think that there were people that may have had like a knowledge that an attack was coming? I wouldn't disagree with that. Specifics? Now nah, you're making a bold claim. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> wasn't there a lot of like airline stocks that were shorted like yeah, prior to 9/11 yeah. happening? Yeah, it was United and American Airlines. Something that um, there was a late, there was a very uh, early researcher named Paul Zarenbaka that addressed this issue, and um, I emailed him like seven years ago and stuff like that but um i thought that was very interesting that right on the uh the week prior to 9-11 was there was a big shortage of stocks regarding american and united airlines and i didn't investigate this because like again this is not my area so i was like well that's really suspicious as heck um but yeah i i, I don't know too much about it so that's why i'd rather not give my opinion because they'll be ignorant okay who, who did the 9-11 uh, attacks benefit I know we had two major wars from it, supposedly. Um, is that kind of what their whole goal was? Or That's a broad question, but I'll, I'll yeah. answer it the best I can. <laughs> well, in terms of simplicity, three countries benefited majorly, and that's the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, because we went to war with the countries that they perceive as the enemy. Okay. For Saudi Arabia, it's a religious enemy, Iran, right? Iran, Iraq. Um, and they want to be the only Sunni power in, in the Middle East. Well, who did we go to war with? We went to war with Libya, Syria, Joint Strike, Pakistan, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. For Israel, it's the entire Arab community. Sunni, Shia, doesn't matter. As long as the United States crushes these people on their behalf. So I would submit to you that those countries benefited. Now, as for additional benefits, military industrial complex mm -hmm. raytheon boeing lg3 technologies i could go on the, the procurement of missiles bullets you know we we went to war with afghanistan the longest war in u.s history 20 years we spent three trillion on that war three trillion yeah on that war now iraq was a, an additional benefit because bin laden basically said to his son hamza said that he had, he had no idea that he was going to attack iraq he said that was great because the the the, the attack if 9-11 was to draw the United States into like Soviet Union, to drag them into a useless war where they, they could hurt the economy. They knew they couldn't beat the, the United States military. So what they wanted was they went to overstand. So when the attack, in other words, in 1990, when, when bin Laden attacked the embassies, 
He thought that Clinton would basically come to United Afghanistan and create the war. But he respected Clinton and says to his son, Hamza, he goes, you know, Clinton is smart, smarter than Bush, because he, he basically all he said was missiles to Afghanistan training camps or whatever. He goes, they didn't send the military. So that's why we took the war to the United States. And we went and hijacked the planes and crashed them. And basically what happened was the United States overextended. And mm -hmm. the additional benefit was Iraq. And so bin Laden looked like a genius because now they're spending trillions into these two useless wars that had, you know, just about nothing to do with 9-11. And then an additional benefit after bin Laden's killed was Syria and Libya. And my God, you know how much war money we spent in the last 15, 20 years on these wars? It just devastated the economy. And now with COVID, I mean, Jesus, Christmas. I mean, we're hurting financially. Really yeah. bad. Yeah. It's terrible. So I think a lot of people benefited. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, Bush knew and, you know, Cheney knew. It, that is simplicity. You want that idiot to know about specifics on 9-11? He's in front of the camera. <laughs> you, know, you don't want that guy talking about specifics. I think the president was on a need-to-know basis. Hey, look, yeah. do I think that there was an attack upcoming? Sure, because in August of 2001, that presidential daily brief that everybody talks about says, hey, listen, Bin Laden's the, the head of the presidential daily brief was – Bin Laden determined to strike in the United States. And they even lied about that. Condoleezza's vice went to 9-11 commission and said, no, Bin Laden to strike the United States. In other words, to strike it from abroad. No, they were inside the United States. And everybody knew. The conspiracy is that, oh, they had little information. No, they had overwhelming information from all over. Hey, red lights. They're in the United States. They're training at flight schools. They're going to hijack these planes. And yeah. they did nothing in terms of security. And it wasn't just not, it wasn't just, you know, 2001, 1996, they even had the threat matrix after the Bajinka plot, which was a transnational plot to put 12 bombs on 12 planes. And when they arrested one of the co-conspirators, Abdullah Kimarat, he told Philippines investigators there was a hidden plot to that. And the hidden plot was this, that there were hidden cells in 96. They were going to hijack 10 planes. And crashed them all over intercontinental United States, and that's where the 9/11 operation came from. Because who was in part, who was in charge of that operation, was Ramzi Youssef, the 93 World Trade Center bomber, and his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And the idea came from 9/11 came idea came from Bajinka. But it just goes to show you that they were inside the United States in the 90s, and the intelligence community knew about it. That's the real conspiracy. So why did the intelligence community not basically warn the FAA? Or IRS to INS Immigration Naturalization Service to have stricter security measures and warn us about these Arabs coming in the United States. I've interviewed Ken Williams, a Phoenix FBI agent, who gave a Phoenix memo, the infamous, "Hey, you got radical fundamentalists training at flight schools in the year 99, 2000." When ignored, nobody acted on it. Huh. So you have to ask yourself why. Well, it's because the establishment wins, no matter what happens. I mean, if they, if they. You, you can't fight against a determined small group of people that are already inside your country. And so if they if they successfully win, then they can amp up their, you know, their security measures and amp up their power and have this, you know, security mm. industrial complex that we have now, the TSA and the rest of it. And I would submit to you, let me put my tinfoil hat on for you. So I would submit to you that, look, if if they knew about the operation beforehand, the intelligence community and said, you know, we could really take advantage of this. The Patriot Act, North American Defense Intelligence, yep. uh, NDAA of 2002-2003, uh, warrantless wiretapping of Americans, war with Iraq and Afghanistan. Hey, we need these attacks to happen so we can actually take benefit for it and take advantage of it. Is that so much out of the, of the conspiracy box? I would submit to you, no. Because no. that's exactly what happened. Right. Well, right. And, do you and, think and they're going to do it again? <laughs> sure. I mean, look. Well, what do you think COVID was? Just a no, different well, iteration so they, of it. Look what happened sure. there. Yeah, yeah. Just and nobody, separate... hardly anybody fought back. No, mm -hmm. very few. Very. There few. was a com there was a comedian on TikTok once, and I don't watch TikTok. I was on Twitter, and basically says, you know, I always said for years that, uh, you know, I would fight back against tyranny if the Germans. I've seen that video. I've yeah, seen that one. It's so funny. He goes, I became part of that. He goes, I did. I took the shots and everything. He goes, we didn't do shit. <laughs> I thought that was funny. That was a yeah, good clip. Yeah. It's going to show you that the short-term memory loss that people will just, you know, be willing to do whatever the government tells them. Do you think there was any motivation in 
getting rid of like, didn't they? I mean, the Pentagon always does this. They just accidentally misplace, you know, trillions of dollars or something. Didn't something like that happen during 9-11 too? Do you think it was partially a cover up for a lot of the stuff that was going on in the buildings or? Yeah, this is this is a huge issue with the truth. Yeah. Two point three billion are missing that day or whatever. By the way, it wasn't announced on September 10th. Don Rumsfeld goes before, you know, there's that clip, you know, we didn't account for two point three trillion. And that was announced on September 10th. What people don't realize is that he's reading an audit report that was reported back in 97. It was about mm-hmm. a, a, an allocate, a misallocation of funds. Which, okay. by the way, is about a real conspiracy about waste funding. There's no waste spending bigger than the Pentagon. They <laughs> freaking forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was in 1999, in March of 2000, the Associated Press released a report about the, the non-allocation of 2.3 trillion. This is March of 2000, so it wasn't a big issue. And Donald Rumsfeld brought this up, and I think he was at a procession, a military procession on September 10th, and brought this up. Uh, at the uh, military procession about, you know, the Pentagon misallocation of funds and we're trying to rectify the issue. And it just so happens that on September 11th, uh, Flight 77 actually crashes into the one area of the Pentagon that was under renovation. And it just so happens that under renovation was the uh, the Naval uh, Naval Operations Command that was investigating the non-allocation of funds. So if you want to say that Oh, somehow that the plane is remotely taken over and basically crashes directly into that. I wouldn't necessarily say that was irrational speculation, although I would have to say that, boy, that's a real stretch. Because if we're talking about remote control planes, then that means that the plane should have made a, a huge turn, which it did over Virginia, because if it was remotely controlled, it would have went straight into it wouldn't have made the loop that it did. Mm. Just yeah. just like 93. If 93 was remotely controlled, why did it crash into a target? Mm. You know, it should have crashed into the Capitol, which was what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wanted. But then when you listen to the phone calls, which nobody really does, you know, they announced that they're going to crash. And which, by the way, they're the only, they're only hijacker to do this. They tell the people, we're crashing a plane into the White House. That's, a, that's two phone calls. So one was a flight, <clears throat> and one was a passenger. They, 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 when, why did they do that? Knowing that Hey, we're going to fight back. And that's what they didn't want. That's why they, they took planes on Tuesdays in September. They, they, they knew that the less load factor was Tuesday. They didn't want to fight back. But why would you announce that we're crashing a plane? Why not just do what Ziad Jarrah did? Basically says we're landing the plane to have it at the mid. Same thing with Mohammed Atta. We're going to land the plane. Don't worry. Plan so they wouldn't fight back. But that wasn't the case on Flight 93. It's almost like, hey, do fight back. It's almost like inviting them to fight back in order to crash the plane. I don't know to tell you. I don't know why, but you know, that's what it's weird. They didn't hit the white house. I know how it, like with January 6th and everything like, well, I mean, I was all staged, I suppose, but it seems like maybe that would have been too far if they hit the white house too, or something. I don't know. Would have been like, I don't know. I'm just speculating. It would have been, would have been harder to hit the white house probably because allegedly there's uh, surface, surface, surface-to-air missiles on the White House. Mm. I don't um, know. That's it, but it, not on the Pentagon, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> all right, all right. You would think that the, the apparatus of the defense intelligence... Although the Pentagon is a lot bigger target than the White House. Yeah, it is huge. Yep. It's, a like, lot of people don't realize it's one of the biggest buildings in the world. Yeah, it's mm. way huge. Um, it could have been just as sim- simple as somebody, somebody getting a little, you know... A little excited. One of the hijackers got a little excited and told a little bit too much of the story. You know, I mean. Well, let me ask you this: just talk too much. You know, guy. Well, I, I think that's a great point that you raised. I never really thought about that. Yeah, you know, it could be. Could be. Could have been that young, wasn't young. part of the plan. Yeah. 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 Very well, could be. Is it kind of crazy that uh, someone would give their life to crash a plane into a building? Do you know what their the mindset of these people was? I've heard it's not necessarily it wasn't so much religious fanatics like these people weren't as religious as you know maybe other muslims and whatnot it was more just politically motivated they wanted revenge and whatnot i don't know what your thoughts are on that it's certainly unprecedented to have multiple people kill themselves willingly yeah knowing that they're going to die in a horrible way to die is you know detonating yourself with a bomb is 
not so much, you know, out of the ordinary because that's what the Palestinian Jihad organization does. Hamas mm -hmm. does this. But to have like Al-Qaeda Al has a very fervent belief called Wahhabism. And what they preach in Wahhabism is not, first of all, Wahhabi is not Islamic. They don't go by the Quran. This is a misconception in the United States. Okay. They go by what they call the Hadith. Now, these are private memoirs attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. These are like, you know, prophets like Ibn Tamiya, who's one of the founders of this sect. But the founder of Wahhabism is a nomad named Muhammad Ibn al-Wahhab, who created his own traditions, su suggesting that praying at the at the tomb of Muhammad is, is sacrilegious or going to Mecca, foreign, foreign people going to Mecca should be outlawed, only Islamic uh, people shall be Semitic people should go uh, worship at the, uh, you know, do the Hajj. And this this prevalent ideology created Saudi Arabia because Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Ibn al-Wahab met with the founder of Saudi Arabia called uh, King Ibn Saud. It was called the Emirate of Diriya. But when they created after that, uh, the Emirate of Diriya, Ibn Saud, uh, his son, took over from the Ottomans, the, the Hashemites, the, 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 the two countries, uh, the two cities, Hijaz and Najid, and solidified Saudi Arabia, which is what known today. But the ideology was it would be create, it would be controlled by two states, religious state, military state. And that is still what which uh, uh, the monarchy of, of uh, Saudi Arabia made today. It's still created that way. Interesting. And what happened is Wahhabism only goes to like radical fundamentalist groups. So Wahhabism is a very small percentage. Well, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State. Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, Jaishi Muhammad in Pakistan, uh, Jemma Islamiyah in Indonesia, Boko Haram in North Africa. You know, these are guys that don't read. They're illiterate. And they're so easily to take, like these clerics, they take advantage of these people, say, you know, we need to fight against government corruption. You know, for example, like Bashar al-Assad is a dictator. But you have these uh, Salafi fundamentalists that are willing to fight and say, we need to bring religion back into the fold so we could, you know, defeat corruption. In other words, they don't see themselves as corrupt. Meanwhile, their religion is corrupt because it's basically not religious at all. So this ideology just brings forth, you know, the poor people together. And that's why they're so fervent in their beliefs. So bin Laden, what he did was basically uh, mandate that anybody who's with Al Qaeda has to serve bin Laden. And, and they use a word for this called bayat, Arabic for loyalty. And that is the first and foremost membership plea the demand of Bayat to bin Laden, and no matter what he says, you have to like uh, you have to do it. So, what they did in the year 2000 was As Sahab, which is the military arm of Al Qaeda. They have, and I have 11 of these uh, uh, martyrdom videos of the 9 11 hijackers, they're uploaded on Odyssey. I tried to upload one on YouTube, and they, they gave me a strike saying I support terrorism. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> So I said, all right, well, I guess I can't upload it. So I upload all the Wahhabi videos of the Martin videos of all the hijackers, 11 of them, not all 19, but 11 of them are uploaded. On, and they all claim that they're doing what they're doing. And they're, in other words, I don't think they knew what they were going to do until the week prior. But I still don't think all of them knew they were going to die. I don't know. But I did, they did make Martin videos. There's 11 that did this. Huh. So they knew they were going to die, but not all of them. I don't think all of them did, but I knew some of them knew. But they're illiterate anyway because they don't read the Quran. In other words, that's what Wahhabism is about. So they they pledged their life and their, their lives. And if Bin Laden told them to die for something, they, they would actually do it because they're illiterate in the same way as evangelical Christians that believe that, you know, there should be a war in Megiddo and the end of the world and, you know, all this stuff. They're They're not biblically illiterate. They're yeah. not, they're the same like the Wahhabi, just like the settlers in Israel, like those backwards people that believe in the third temple being built in, you know, the old Goyim, you know, they'll, they'll have 500 Gentiles in heaven as slaves. Well, they're no different than the Islamic State because they, Islamic State are fighting for a caliphate themselves. So they yeah. believe in a the caliphate themselves, but for Israel, that's it. But there's no difference in these people. Hmm. So hopefully that made sense for you. Yeah, that made hmm. great sense. Got any more questions, Brett? Uh, no, man. That was a, a lot to go, to go over right now. I'm still <laughs> processing that. 
it's a like look this is where a lot of people became disinterested with 9-11 they say you know this is so big and so is you know it's really not you know you don't no, have to do what i do i spend hours a day on this stuff i can i can afford it and um i've been with it for 16 years you don't have to do what i'm doing you just have to understand just the mundane minutiae of say you know who did like for example why did the CIA withhold information from the FBI about two al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States? Hey, that's a great starting point. You know, you don't have to go and understand Wahhabism or none like that, you know, like I do. Is right, it, hey, right. wait a minute, why, why is that? Like, Canistrio document is the biggest revelation in 9-11 history. It's so huge because it actually answers the questions about what we suspected years ago. And it shows for absolute certainty the fact that the CIA knew that they were running an illegal operation inside the United States, the CIA, the CIA. Yeah. and you would think the media would be all over this or all media for God, it was ignored. And I I'm still stunned by this. Like, wow, you, you claim to hate the CIA. You claim to think they're, well, all right. Why aren't you talking about this? They were running an illegal operation with Saudi intelligence and they knew there were two Al Qaeda operatives. They knew them as Al Qaeda. They were coming from an Al Qaeda summit meeting in Malaysia. And they were coming to the United States and they were told this information from the FBI intentionally. And not only that, they lied about the 9-11 commission, committed perjury. Holy oh. shit, man. What, God's sakes, this is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Covered yeah. by nobody. The only people that covered it, of all people, Russia Today, RT News, <laughs> and uh, the Gray Zone. <laughs> I, I still can't get over the fact that, Wow. Mm. Wow, it's, it's stunning. It really is. It's amazing. Where can think... we find where can we find your work? Oh, you can you can easily just Google my name and 9-11. I come right up. Um okay. but I'm on YouTube. I use my real name. I'm not afraid. Like I want you know, like if I'm saying something wrong, I want people to you know say, hey, listen, you got this wrong. You know, I want yeah. to be I only I only want to report primary source material, not opinions and speculation. I want to educate the public. You know, this is a re- the whole idea of my 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 existence on viral media is basically not to basically make money because I don't make a dime. And what I do is I, I want to offset the, the the misinformation and educate the audience properly and responsibly about these attacks because I want to hold people responsible. You know, I yeah. can easily watch a Yankee game like that. I, I followed the Yankees for 30 years. I don't watch them anymore. How could I go back to that ignorant life? Because there right. are bigger issues at play. And right. this is a huge issue. So what I what I'm trying to say is that if, you know, I want to report 100% honestly about this one subject. And there's millions of subjects I could have used, but 9-11 is a huge subject. And I want to report earnestly and honestly because I want something done. Yeah. You know, you know I, why did I run a podcast with the Darkened Hour? Because I want people to know about what's going on in their name and they're being lied to about certain issues or misinformed about certain issues. And, you know, I've interviewed two people from Guantanamo that were prisoners for years. They were tortured. You know, they deserve justice. Just like, you know, I interviewed Brett Eagleson and Elizabeth Miller, you know, who lost loved ones in the World Trade Center. You know, they deserve justice. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a friend of mine text me today, says, you know, you're, what you're doing is fruitless. Nobody cares. And uh, like, tell them they don't care. Like, you know what? Yeah. Forget about what happened to you. Forget about what happened to you 20 years from now. You know, don't care. I, I'm not doing this for me. You know, if, if it was about me, I would I would have. I think about quitting every day. Because yeah, I've had enough of the headaches and these people and all stuff like that. But I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for, for other people because I care. I could easily yeah. not. You know, I was called the Robert Smith of 9-11 once a couple of years ago because I'm such a depressing individual. <laughs> 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 I thought that was great. I thought it was funny. But, yeah, I'm a depressing individual because I, I, I investigate depressing stuff. But you don't have to be me. You know, like, I'm doing it because I do care and I want something done. And I really believe in this. You know, justice aspect, even though I don't think we're going to get it. But it, hey, it's a good fight. Yeah. That's what um, can, you, can you tell us quick about the Guantanamo Bay people that pertain to 9 11? Yeah, Muhammad Aoud Slahi is uh, uh, one individual I got in contact with. And he wrote a, there was a movie about him called okay. uh, Moritarian. You know, and Jody Foster was in it. And um, uh, Meryl, uh, not Meryl Street, um, Jody, Jody Foster and somebody else. And basically, it was about him. And he he wrote he wrote a diary in Guantanamo Bay. He was actually considered the most dangerous individual. Meanwhile, he's the most nicest person in the world. And they said that because he met with one of the 9/11 hijackers, uh, the planners of 9/11, Ramsey Bin Al Sheep, he met him in Germany in a guest house. He didn't know who he was. 
and it was some somehow he invited he was invited to a house that he lived in and he stood over one day and he left. Somehow Ramsey bin Oshib was captured in Pakistan and told him about that. And then Sly he was actually uh, uh, captured by Yemeni authorities. He was then transferred to uh, to a police station and then he was handed over to the CIA. And mm-hmm. then he was at black sites and he's he's tortured mercilessly. <laughs> For years, he's in these black sites. He goes to Guantanamo. He's there 16 years. Mm. Never charged. He gets mm. out. And basically, you know, and I would think, man, you know, what what he probably hates America. He does. Holds no response. And he wrote, a, he wrote a diary in the prison called Guantanamo Diary. I read it. And I've always wanted to reach out to him. And I, luckily, I know a director in Germany who got reached out to him. And then I had him on the show. And I let him talk. I just said, you know what? I just, I, I'm just going to ask him a question and let him go. And for two yeah. hours and 20 minutes, he spoke about what happened to him and stuff. And I reached out to another detainee, Mansour Adafreed. And he's another Yemeni. No, they charged nothing, nothing. He's brutally tortured, terribly. Hmm. And he talked about his his story and stuff. So, you know, you get these guys that are basically, you know, captured in these, and they're captured by these Afghan warlords because they get a price. And they, they basically what happened was they captured these opposing people, these Afghan tribal, because the Afghan tribal leaders are very warring and jealous of one another. That's a yeah. whole different talk. So they, they actually hand them over to the CIA and say, yeah, this guy's Taliban. Yeah, they're Al Qaeda. And so they, they just arrested people left and right. At one yeah. point, there was over 900 people at Guantanamo Bay. Now there's, I think, 24. Hmm. So that means over 800 something people were released. And they had nothing to do with terrorism or Al-Qaeda or Taliban. There's After, only one, yeah. one person that was ever charged. Years. One. One person. He went to a trial and he's found guilty. One. That's it. And we still have the five guys, you know, that charged for 9-11. And we tortured them. Even if they told the truth that they were behind 9-11, how could you believe them? Yeah. They were tortured. Yeah, we'll, never have a trial. we'll never have a trial. We're never going to have to. Because you know what? All their confessions are made out of truth. They know it. And the lawyers, they're salivating at the bit. Go ahead, bring it. We're just going to get thrown out anyway. So, yeah, you can, I mean, yeah, if you Google my name, Adam Fitzgerald 911, I come right up. Twitter, go to my Twitter page, underscore Adam Fitzgerald. And I have a pinned tweet where all my links are there and stuff. Like that. Awesome. I'll check you out. Yeah, thanks Thanks for coming on the show. I, I appreciate you, you know, doing the selfless work and studying all this stuff. And it's, you know, like, you're one of the few people that doesn't get paid or doesn't uh, sort of grift and, you know, make it all about making money. And, um, you know, we really appreciate, you know, people like you existing. So, no, thank you for taking an interest and thank you for having me on. It's very nice of you. Um, but yeah, no, like I said, you know, I don't make a dime from it. And I, I do it because I have this naivety to believe that we'll get justice. And if I don't believe that, then what's the sense of going on? Yeah. Alrighty, well, I think we'll end it there. Thanks for coming on. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you for having me.